I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Well, please pray with me. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Come. Oh, Father, this is what we desire among the various outcomes that, uh, that you would bring from uh, this time in your word that you would enable by your spirit uh, those who have not yet come to the Lamb, who have not yet washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, that you would enable them to come today. That they would hear the shepherd's voice calling to them and they would know themselves to be beloved by that good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep and that they would come as he calls to them today. And for uh, those already in the flock, already under the shepherd, would you grant that we would be fed and strengthened, that we would, from this portion of your word, Uh, be deepened and made more wise in faithfulness that we might be made into those who overcome unto the end and who inherit the things that Christ has purchased for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might find this a very odd ending to the book of Revelation if you thought about it. Uh, You might think back to last week's text and uh, say, hey, verse 5 is uh, that sounds like a that sounds like a perfect ending, uh, not just to the book of Revelation, but to the entire Bible. Listen to verse five again. I mean, you got to wonder why we didn't end here. And there shall no longer be any night. 
And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever, the end. But that's not where the book ends. In fact, it goes on for 16 more verses. And not just 16 more verses, but these particular 16 verses, eight of which are eight of which contain exhortations to obedience and warnings against unholy living. Now that, that should get your attention. That is meant to get our attention. As we finish the book of Revelation, what we discover is that the vision of the future that we were given in chapters 21 and the beginning of chapter 22, those, those were not given to us so that we could have our curiosity satisfied and be you know, given a peek around the corner of life to see what's coming, and, and that's it, just to satisfy our, our desire for comfort in the present. No, these last 16 verses prove that there is a different point, and it is that, it is that we would be resolved as the people of Christ now, in the present, to live lives that are characterized by a greater urgency, a greater urgency about a number of things, And you could summarize them this way. An urgency to avoid compromise. And so, what I want to do this morning as we finish our series on Revelation is to just take four of the themes, four of the the strands. uh, There are more than this, believe me. uh, Four of the strands that are emphasized in these last verses of Revelation. And to... they're, they're, They're really strands or themes of urgency. And I just want to reflect on them with you. To close out this series. And the first of those themes, those urgencies, is the theme of holiness. And what, what we see from these verses is that fidelity to Jesus Christ. And by the way, each one of these themes is going to be relevant to both non-Christians and to Christians. So if you're a visitor here and you're a non-Christian, I just encourage you to keep your ears appealed uh, for how this will apply to you, because I intend to, by God's grace, uh, to show you how these things are relevant to you. So what, what this first theme of holiness that runs throughout these verses, again, eight out of these last 16 verses, contain exhortations uh, to obedience, to holiness, and warnings about uh, unholiness. Uh, what these show us is that fidelity to Jesus Christ will necessarily entail an urgency about the pursuit of holiness among his people. So Christians, this is first for you. And you notice there are two very stark warnings in this passage about holiness. They are warnings that are given to insiders who are in danger of becoming outsiders. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. Look first at verse 11, which you may have puzzled over. In some ways, it's the strangest verse in the passage. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Well, now, when does the Bible ever say things like that? Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now, don't misinterpret that verse. That verse is not endorsing or approving sin. It's simply recognizing this spiritual reality that both sin, unholiness, And righteousness or holiness are both reinforced and strengthened through repetition. And so what 
what's happening is that we're being reminded in verse 11 that everybody is shaping their destiny. There is nobody here who is not actively shaping your destiny. I can't tell you how serious that is. I do not have words that can impress upon you with the amount of seriousness that is required. How relevant that is to each of us. No one's life or practice is neutral And what verse 11 calls us each to do is to examine ourselves today. Who am I today in the presence of God? Who am I? And not to take for granted the call that is being issued from this text by God himself to each of us to resolve, to change, or to to be confirmed. In following him. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way very well, I think. You know, we don't have, don't assume that you have an endless string of tomorrows set before you within which you can have the opportunity in the future when you deem it fit to repent and turn to Christ. Do not assume that. That would be very unwise. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. We simply do not know which time God speaks to us will be the last time. That is so true. I always assume on Sunday mornings that this is the last sermon I will ever preach. And you should assume when you come to church that it is the last time you will ever hear the gospel. If you don't prepare for worship that way, you don't understand the stakes of what is going on here. Sinclair Ferguson goes on and he says, we do well to assume this time is the last time. And commit ourselves to the Lord while he still speaks. That's what verse 11 is saying. But there's a second warning and it's in verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And what that verse is really is just a a future fast forward. What is the outcome of people who resist Christ ultimately and reject him and do not respond to God's offer of mercy. You see mercy in this passage, right? I mean, verse 17, there's this wide, open-hearted call of God's mercy to any who will come and to offer to any who will come to offer uh, to be able to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That's offered to any, but those who reject that offer in the end will be eternally separated from God. And in order to avoid that danger there is some very frank speaking that is going on in this passage. Notice in verse 16 who these warnings are for. You might say, well, now, wait a second. This is talking to people outside the church. It's not talking to people inside the church. Oh, no, no, no. You notice in verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things, all these things, for the churches. And there you have the incredible realism of Jesus Christ about the inside of his church. He knows that there are people inside his churches who are really outsiders, who are not committed to him, who are not yielding their lives to his lordship, who, for whatever variety of reasons, are in a church but are not living in obedience to his commands and have not yielded their lives to him. 
Now, I've been a Christian long enough, 28 years, and I've been a pastor long enough, nine years, to know that the inside of a church is a battlefield. And there are real spiritual casualties in every church. There is dangerous There are dangerous things that go on inside churches because where God is active, let the wise hear. Where God is active, the evil one is active. Just watch the Gospels. Watch what happens to Jesus in his earthly ministry. Friends, the inside of a church is not a sin-free zone. The inside of a church is not a temptation-free zone. The inside of a church is not a compromise-free zone. And we have to be wise about these things. Remember what Paul says to the Corinthians. Therefore, he let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 3 of Hebrews says, but encourage one another day after day. Listen to this. But encourage one another day after day. This is talking about life inside the church. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you, that's addressing the inside of the church, be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I have seen it. So do not pretend that that reality is not a reality that you have to attend to. Friends, it is a danger for everyone inside the church. So be wise. And especially in hard times. Hard times... Never leave us unchanged. Hard times can make hearts very hard. Hard times can make hard hearts. Hard times can make hearts hard toward God. You begin to get cynical about Him. You're tempted to doubt His promises. Your love cools. You find yourself complaining more and murmuring more. Moving away from His Word because it seems because of the hardships that you're enduring that His promises are not true. Oh, friends, be on your guard. Hard times can make hard hearts not only toward God, but also toward other people. Our love cools. When we are going through struggles, we tend, we are tempted to be more selfish than we ordinarily are. And so our love for others cools. And we find ourselves speaking poorly about them or thinking poorly about them. And it happens by a matter of degrees. And if you find yourself hard in either direction toward God or to others, you need to realize that you're actually hard in both and Satan is clapping his filthy little hands. See, Jesus is speaking very frankly. These warnings are for the churches. God is active. There is spiritual power inside the assembly of Christ's people. And the stakes of eternity are right here in our midst. But hard times can also make soft hearts. That's what's so beautiful. And for I rejoice to be able to say it. So, hearts that are softened toward God. You Under the weight of trials and difficult times, what happens? You, so, for some, it turns into this opportunity for growth. It, hearts become tender. We realize we are weaker than we thought. The gift of a trial from God is to, is to show us that we are weaker than we thought. That He means to lead us to Himself where we discover His sufficiency and His supply more and more and more. Friends, that's what God designs for trials to do, to soften our hearts, not hard them. 
not harden them, and toward others as well, to have compassion for their struggles as we go through struggles as well. So I want to ask you, which is it for you? Hard times never leave us unchanged. It's never neutral. Which direction are you moving in? Are you moving in the direction of holiness and a zeal for God's commandments? Or are you cooling down by a matter of degrees? Be on your guard. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? The second theme is the book. And this is uh, an urgency about the book of Revelation itself. It's a very um, surprising theme. It really caught me off guard as I was working through this passage. Did you notice how often in the verses that Jeremy read that reference was made to the book of Revelation itself? Six times the word words is used. Five times the word book is used. And four times the word prophecy is used through these verses. I I don't think, I've been thinking about this all week, I don't think there is another book in the Bible that ends the way this one does with very specific instructions and warnings that relate to how you handle this particular book. And so that stands out. And that means that it's very important to us. With that kind of repetition, with that kind of, of, you know, multiple layers, you have the prophecy, which is kind of the big picture. The prophecy is in a book and that book is made up of words. Do you see how those things connect? Prophecy contained in a book and the book is made of words. And there are three ways of that we're not supposed to not supposed to handle this book. Or, excuse me, two ways we're not supposed to handle it and one way we're supposed to handle it. And let me deal with them in reverse order from the one that's in your outline. The first thing that we are warned about this book not to do is to tamper with it. Don't tamper with this book. Look at verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, that's tampering with it by adding to it, saying it's not sufficient. I need to clarify it. God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. That's a very serious warning. And then verse 19, tampering with it by taking away. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in the book. In other words, Christian identity is linked to how we respond to this book. We're not supposed to tamper with it. We're not supposed to add to it. We're not supposed to take away from it. And notice, it's at the level of the words of this book. Now, some people will say, yes, I believe the Bible's inspired, but only at the level of general principles and spiritual truths. It's a very commonly held view. And it's a very seriously mistaken view. And it's a view that will not stand under this text. Do you see what's being said here? God is saying, do not tamper with the principles of this book. He's saying, do not touch the words of this book. Because the words are God's property. That's a very high view of the inspiration of Scripture. Don't mess with the Bible. The words are God's words. And I rejoice that they are. So don't tamper with the Bible. Verses, or with the book of Revelation, verses 18 and 19. 
The second thing we're not supposed to do with this book is to keep it closed. That's verse 10. Don't seal it up. Listen to verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. In other words, he's saying, don't keep this book closed. Don't avoid it. Don't ignore it. Don't treat it as irrelevant. Don't treat it as obscure. Don't treat it as something that only some Christians can pay attention to. Do not neglect this book. And the reality is, we do, right? Because it's hard. Because there are things in it that are not so easy to understand. But this is a command, friends, to keep the book open. This is a command to pay attention to this book. And I would say that as North American evangelicals, this has to be for us. This has to be one of the most important books in the New Testament, because the vision of reality that this book gives us of God's rule and of his authority over the nations and of the dangers of prosperity that can intoxicate a people and numb them to spiritual realities, those are things we need to hear. And in no book in the New Testament are those themes pressed home with such force as they are in this book. So don't neglect this book. Don't avoid it. We we have to acknowledge our vision of reality is poor and our vision needs to be corrected. And our hearts wander away and we need to we need to linger uh, in front of the vision that this book gives us of the power and might and authority of Jesus Christ. It is a tremendous vision for us. Those are the things we're not supposed to do with the book. What are we supposed to do with the book? And that's the most important thing, and it is to worship God. Let me show you that from verses 8 and 9. Notice what happens to John here. He says, and I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And that's the that's a reference to the entire book of Revelation. And that's, by the way, what he has written for us in this book. When I I am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw the content of the book, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, notice what the angel does. The angel does not come to him and say, don't worship based on the content of the book. What he says is, worship the right one. Don't worship me. He's saying, worship God. That's what he says at the end of verse 9. He is affirming that John's response to the content of the book should be worship. But he's saying, worship God. Don't worship an angel. Now, friends, this is so important to get this clearly. The relationship between the word of God and the worship of God. The relationship between the word of God and the worship of God. John is saying, he's saying, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship. In other words, the content of this book should lead the people of God to worship and realize this, that as students of this book, we, each of us, has heard And seen the very same things that John has heard and seen. He's written, according to chapter 1, exactly what he heard and saw. And so our response should be 
no less urgent. So let me tell you how I worked with this in my own life this week. I, I, uh, I tampered with verse 8 a little bit. I said, I, Mike, am the one who heard and saw these things. And I meditated on what it means for me to have heard and saw the things that God has shown me in this book. And I invite you to put your name in the same place. Friends, is there anything that God could say to you right now? Is there anything that God could show you right now? Is there anything that God could tell you right now that would lead you to leap out of your chair and fall down on your feet and worship Him? Is there anything God could show you that would overpower your embarrassment at uh, what other people might think about you for doing that? Is there anything that God could show you about Christ or about what your future is in Christ that would prompt you to pay great praise to God? Well, that's what John models for us here. And it is what we are to do to worship It's very important to get this clear about Revelation because more than any other book in the Bible, this book has been prodded and kicked and poked and treated as the basis for an argument. Right? I mean, isn't that what normally happens? The book of Revelation? Isn't that how it's normally handled? It becomes the basis for an argument. Its ambiguity becomes fuel for arguments and disputes rather than than catch the most clear and central point of the entire book that we're to worship God. And if you look at this book, and I've given you the passages in your outline, this book is woven together by scenes of heavenly worship. That is what the point of the book is. And so as you spend time in the book, as you reflect on this book, and by God's grace, I I pray that it has become more accessible to you over the last year. May it be a study that always leads you to worship God and not to fuel arguments. I have no interest in fueling arguments. So, friends, the third point now is that is emphasized in this uh, last passage is the true and full identity of Jesus Christ. What we're being shown in these uh, last 16 verses is something very remarkable about our Lord, something uh, very urgent about that the church is to hold fast to about him. And it has to do with his identity as fully God and fully man. And both those things are being affirmed in this passage. And they are the heart of what preserves the power of the gospel. If either one of those things is compromised, then the power of the gospel is annihilated. The gospel goes away if both those things are not defended as fully true. Let me show you first uh, the full deity of Christ, that he is fully God. And that um, that is shown to us in two ways. First, I want you to see in verse six something that you might not have noticed. This is the angel speaking to John, and he, the angel is explaining his commission to John, how it is that he has been sent to John. And notice what he says. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit, the, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Now, 
Who is the God of the spirits of the prophets? Is that the Father? Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. And let me show you why. Notice, this Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel. You see that? Now go over to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. This is an amazing statement of Jesus' deity. Jesus is saying about himself, or the angel is saying, excuse me, the angel is saying about Jesus that he, Jesus, is the God of the spirits of the prophets. And First Peter tells us that it was the Spirit of Christ. First Peter 1.11 tells us that it was the Spirit of Christ that was actually at work in all the Old Testament prophets. Friends, that is a big vision of Jesus. And it just gets bigger and bigger. Go over to verse 13, where Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, if that rings a bell, it should. Because the Alpha and the Omega... The beginning and the end are exactly how the Father described himself in chapter 21, verse 6. And now Jesus is taking those same four names and he's adding two more to it. And he's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Friends, he is saying that he is is equal to the Father. That he is also the Alpha and the Omega. That he is also the beginning and the end, and that he is the first and the last. Friends, this is so important to see this. That statement of our Lord's is not meant to be a just like checking a theological box, like I'm going to check the box of historic Christian orthodoxy and say, yes, I believe that Jesus is God. What that statement from Jesus' own lips is meant to do in our lives, it is a call to worship, friends. Among us here, who can say that we live, we have lived according to an adequate vision of Jesus Christ's greatness? Friends, He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He is the first and He is the last. He is the beginning and He is the end. Who here has lived in light of that glory? Who here has used the name of Jesus with the kind of reverence and awe that the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end deserve? Who among us? Who among us is not called to repent by that vision of Jesus' full deity and authority? Who among us has given to Jesus the honor which He deserves? Who among us has worshipped Him and trusted Him as He is worthy of being trusted because He is the Alpha and the Omega? Friends, He is saying that we are all surrounded by the greatness of Jesus Christ. Friends, He is the Alpha. He surrounds us no matter how far back we go in time or priority. He is before us. And He is also the Omega. He is not just the Alpha, the beginning and the first, but He is also the Omega and the last and the end. All things are flowing to Him. He takes all of our lives and surrounds us with His greatness. If your vision of Jesus is that His name is just some kind of magic incantation that you can wave around 
And so get God to be on your side. You misunderstand who you're dealing with. Friends, this is the Jesus who walks in the midst of our church. It is this Jesus in whose name we pray. It is this Jesus who will be present by His Spirit next week at communion. It is this Jesus who intercedes for you, beloved, at God's right hand right now. It is this Jesus who protects you by His power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is this Jesus whose greatness surrounds and envelops you and all lives. It is this Jesus that we call Lord. Now, friends, that is meant to create serious people. That is meant to create not fluff, but depth. That is meant to create people who are courageous. That is meant to create people who are faithful. That is meant to create people who are holy, people who sacrifice, people who stand in the midst of a storm and trust God. It is meant to produce people who live in freedom because that Jesus gave himself for your sins. Friends, if he were one or the other, Alpha or Omega, his greatness would be limitless. But he is both. But he is not just fully God, he's also fully man. This is the amazing thing about Christianity that I just, it just, it never ceases to amaze me, cause me wonder or joy that the Jesus Christ of the Bible is not not any less fully human for being fully God. Is that a mystery? Yes. Is it true? Yes. Just because something's a mystery doesn't mean it's not true, by the way. Notice, not only is Jesus declaring himself fully God here, but he is also declaring himself to be fully human. Now, where's that, you say? Well, look at verse 16 toward the end. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these, these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. Now, David's a man. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega of David. I'm the root and I'm the offspring. And for Jesus to be the offspring of David means that he's fully man. Now, why does this matter? Why am I spending so much time on this? Well, I'll tell you. The first reason is because almost any heresy that you will deal with will try to compromise one of those two poles. You watch. Whether it's Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're going to try to compromise, and they do compromise. They compromise the full deity of Jesus Christ. So it is unorthodox, it is heterodox, it is a heresy. The Mormons, the same thing. You need to, you need to be jealous for the truth and the honor of Jesus Christ's full deity. But there's another reason why I want you to be careful with this. And that is because the gospel is at stake With both of these. Because it is Jesus' full deity, that he is fully God, and the fact that he is fully man. That is, those are the foundations on which the gospel rests. If we tamper with either one of those, we have no gospel. Because Jesus' qualifications as both a judge and as a savior depend on both. He has authority as a judge because he is both God and man. And he has power as a savior because he is both God and man. Now, let me try to unpack that. 
Look at verse 12. Jesus is telling us something about himself. He is going to return as a judge. You see this? We, in verse 11, we have these exhortations about, about sin and holiness. And then the very next verse, verse 12, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. He says he's going to come and he's going to judge every man. Second coming. Then, if you drop down to verses 14 and 15, you have two very different rewards being described, right? You have the reward given to the saints in verse 14, and then you have the reward given to those who reject Christ in verse 15. Now, I skip verse 13. Did you notice that? I want you to see verse 13 is a statement about Jesus' deity. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And verse 16 is where we find the statement about his humanity. So what brackets those rewards as Jesus' authority to be the judge of all men is the truth that he is both God and man. And that is totally essential. You see, as God, friends, Jesus has the right to judge. Everything you have comes from Christ. Every beat of your heart is upheld by the word of Christ's power. As one who is fully God, who is the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus has the right to judge all men. But as man, he also has the righteousness by which he measures all men. As man, right, he has fulfilled all All the law. As man, he has fulfilled all the requirements of God's commandments. And so he is then qualified to stand before all flesh as the gold standard, if you will, by which all true humanity will be measured and judged on the last day. And Jesus is going to judge both because he has the right as God and because he has the righteousness as man. He will judge as God, man, all men, women and children. So his qualifications as judge in the last day depend on both natures. But more than that, even, his qualifications as Savior depend on both. Because as God, Jesus sustained human nature under the wrath of God. As God, he provided a righteousness that was perfect. As God, he defeated our enemies, sin and death. As God, he was able to bear the full weight of God's justice against our sin. And as man, right? As man, he answered as a man for the sins of men. If you don't have both poles, if you don't have both pillars, you have no gospel. Now, friends, before we go any further, before we get to the last point about our Lord's return, let me clarify something about the gospel, what it is and what it isn't. Is verses 14 and 15 are very serious verses. They describe two very different destinies. Destiny one in verse 14 is for those whose eternal citizenship will be in the city that we've been studying for the last two weeks. Right in the presence of God, around the throne of God. And they have the right not only to enter the city by its gates, but they have the right to the tree of life. And verse 15 
describes the eternal destiny of those who reject Christ and who spurn God's mercy. Now, here's my question. What is it that determines the difference between those two destinies? What is it? What is the pivot point? What makes the difference? What determines whether somebody is going to have access to the city eternally or is going to live eternally separated from God? What is it that determines whether somebody is in verse 14 or verse 15? You need to be thinking about that. What is it? Now, you might say, well, based on verse 11, you know, it says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, like it's too late. Let the one who's filthy still be filthy, like it's too late. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who's holy still keep himself holy. So, based on verse 11, I'm, Mike, my answer to your question is that what determines the difference between whether somebody's in verse 14 or verse 15 is whether or not they're a sinner. so happy that that is not the answer. Friends, that is not the answer. Keep reading to verse 14. Look at verse 14 again. Well, let me just, let me stop there for a second before we do that. You know, there may be some people here who are saying, you know, um, Francis, uh, you don't know me. I am a Big sinner. That's not the word I would use, but we're in a church and that's a churchy word. So I'll call myself a sinner. And you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea the kind of life I've led. You have no idea how different I am from the people in this church, how different I am from you. You have no idea how messed up my family is or how totally ruined my history is. You have no idea. I don't act like Christians I don't look like you guys. I don't dress like you. I don't talk like you. So this has no relevance to me. Well, if you're thinking that, I'm so glad that you came because I believe that one of the things God wants to do today is to correct your error. And it's my joy to be able to take you into verse 14 and show you something which you might have missed. Because the mercy of God is exploding in this room from this text. The the readiness of God, the call of God to extend his grace to you in Christ is just ready to pounce on you from this text. I want you to look at verse 14 and think with me carefully about it. Who's in the city? Notice who's in the city. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now think about that. Blessed are those who, what? Wash their robes. Now think about that. We wash what we know is what? Dirty. So there are people, in fact, the only people in that city are people who realized that they were dirty. And what they did is, They washed their robes. Now, that's that's an image, okay? And I'll explain it in a minute. You might not know it, but that's a reference to something earlier in Revelation, in chapter 7. So would you go with me there to chapter 7? And friends, if you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't appear to have a Bible or doesn't know where chapter 7 is, would would you either share your text with them or open the Pew Bible for them to Revelation 7? 
Again, the image is washing robes. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 14. Now, where we are in chapter 7 at this point is that John has uh, seen a vision of heaven and he's seen the, the glorified church around God's throne. He's seen, and it's a multi-ethnic multitude, people from every a tribe and tongue and people and nation. Uh, it's, it's a totally diverse group of people. And uh, the angel who's there with, John, or excuse me, one of the elders says, uh, John, uh, he, he says, these are those, starting in verse 13, he says, these, are, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And uh, what, excuse me, I'm sorry, I lost my, uh, lost my attention span there. These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? This is a, a teaching moment. The elders trying to teach John. And John says, I said to him, my Lord, you know. John doesn't want to make a mistake. And so the elder explains, he said, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So when we're in chapter 22, verse 14, that's what's being talked about. The people who get into the city are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb, which means that they have they have come to realize that it is only the death of Jesus Christ as their substitute and faith in that death and in what God has accomplished through it that can clean anyone up. Now, friends, that is so important to see. There's two steps there, right? You wash what you know is dirty. And we call that repentance. We call that acknowledging that we are sinners who are guilty before God and we have no claim on his mercy. But we come to him and realize that we've offended his law. We've broken his commandments. We have made ourselves dirty with our own disobedience. So we wash what we know is dirty. That's repentance. But we wash it. Right? We wash Things, we put them in, we plunge them into something that we know will clean what is dirty. And the only solvent for sin in the universe is the death of Jesus Christ. Now, what's being said here is this. Let me connect these dots for you, friends. What this means, don't miss this. This means that every single person who enters that city, who has a right to the tree of life, was filthy once. There is nobody in that city who did not need to wash their robes. There is nobody in that city who didn't need to go to the death of Christ and literally or figuratively take themselves and plunge themselves by faith into the work of Christ, counting on Christ's work alone as the only thing to qualify them before God. Nobody in that city except people who've done that. So, friends, I don't care what your background is. The only citizens in that city were people who were once filthy. So the only difference between you and them is that you have not yet obeyed God's call to come and acknowledge that your robes are dirty and to take advantage of the worth of Christ and to plunge yourself by repentance of faith in his finished work, which God calls you to do today. And he says, come, come to the blood of Christ, come to the work of my son. Don't just sit there, plunge yourself by faith into that work. And receive my mercy. I, that is such an encouragement to me. 
Friends, it's not we who clean ourselves up. It's Christ who cleans us up. It is only the cross that can clean. If you know yourself well enough, you know that you only make yourself dirtier when you try. So the third point and our last point is the urgency about our Lord's second coming. And you notice Jesus is very urgent about it here. We're not so urgent about it in our culture. But Jesus is very urgent about it. He mentions it three times in this passage. Verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. And he always says, I'm coming quickly. When he says, I'm coming, he always says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming. Verse 7, behold, I'm coming quickly. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming quickly. Verse 20, yes, I'm coming quickly. And each time, this is not John saying, Jesus is coming quickly. This is Jesus' personal promise. This is, these are Jesus' own words where he is saying, I am coming quickly. And you say, well, wait a second. What's so quick about 2,000 years? Hey, you know, I was at the the debate with Christopher Hitchens, you know, 10 days ago. And Hitchens picked this point and he mocked God because of that. He said, oh, what is this coming quickly? That proves the promise isn't true. And he, he totally misses the point. Friends, you're not supposed to evaluate time in the way that God does. You can't unless you obey his word. Right? Quickly to us. I mean, think about how weird our definition of quickly is. If my operating system doesn't open up, you know, within 13.7 seconds, that's slow. What does quickly mean? Friends, that word means something very important to God. Time viewed from God's perspective is not the way we view time. Psalm 90, verse 4 says this, listen to this. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. So in God's sight, a thousand years is just like a single day. But it goes on to say this, or as a watch in the night. That's even less than a full day. That's a quarter of a full day. So then Peter picks up on that in Second Peter 3. And there are a lot of people Peter was dealing with saying, hey, where's the second coming? Yeah, whatever. Peter said, you don't get it, do you? Peter said, you don't get it. That was our call to worship this morning. Did you notice that? Peter says this. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. God doesn't view time the way we do. If we could see history from God's perspective, what we would see is that we are in the final quarter of history right now. When Jesus was ascended to the Father's right hand and poured out his Holy Spirit, guess what? The fourth quarter of history began. We are on the last lap of history. And that is meant to create urgency in us. It's meant to change the way we live. We're meant to rejoice in the, in the patience of God now. And so there are three implications I want to close with. If that's true, that Jesus is coming quickly, there are three ways we're supposed to live. Two of these are for Christians and one of them is for non-Christians. First, look at verse 17. This is for Christians. The first application is this. We as Christians are in this time as we await Jesus' quick return. We are to call others to come to Christ. 
Do you notice this? Verse 17. Notice that. Notice how this language is written. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Now, that's interesting, because what that means is that we as the people of Christ are supposed to speak. We're supposed to speak to people, an invitation to people to come who haven't come yet to interact with non-Christians. We're supposed to speak to them. And we're supposed to speak to them as we have first been spoken to by the Spirit. We've received the invitation to come. We should now extend that invitation. And notice this, our great confidence is not that it's up to our speech. The Holy Spirit doesn't just leave it to us. The Holy Spirit is also speaking through us as we speak. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. We must call others to come. That's part of what we've been trying to encourage you to do, to invite people to come to Christianity Explored. Speak. Extend an invitation. Show them Christ. But there's also a call here to non-Christians. Do you see that? In the second half of verse 17, you are being called as a non-Christian. You're being invited to Jesus Christ this morning by the Lord himself through this text, through this living word. Listen, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for God? Do you realize that you need God? You need to, to be reconciled to your creator, that there are sins that you have not, you have not sought uh, God's forgiveness for? Did you realize you're estranged from him? That you've discovered that you've lived your whole life on a path away from God and there's this dawning recognition in your mind that there is this massive issue out on the periphery of my thoughts and feelings, which is I believe that there is a God, but I am so conscious of my sin that I am terrified to acknowledge it as anything other than a distant intellectual reality. I have no hope at a practical level of ever being reconciled to him where I could call him my father and enjoy peace with him. If that's you, if you are thirsty in that way, if you have realized this morning that God has shown you that your robes are dirty, then I want you to hear the invitation of Jesus Christ in this verse. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It's free. God says, do you wish it? Do you want that water of life that Jesus offers? Well, God stands ready to give it to you this morning. But you must acknowledge the truth about who you are. Your robes are dirty. That's repentance. And you must take your whole self and plunge yourself, your past, present, and future, into the work of Christ, dying as your substitute, rising again to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and now calling upon him as your Lord. You must respond in that way. Just to hear it is not to heed it. And the final application is for us Christians. We also call to our Lord. Do you notice that? Oh yeah, second coming. I know that's happening. Do you notice how this text applies it? In Christians' lives, not just a, 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 a witness to others, but also a calling out to Jesus ourselves to say, come, Lord Jesus. We want him to come. 
Don't you long for your king to come? Don't you long for him to receive the glory that is his due? Don't you long for him to rule the nations with this golden scepter? Don't you long for him to be praised and to receive what he has earned? Do you not long for the knowledge of his glory to fill the earth? Oh, friends, does that not stir you? To see Jesus on his throne, to see him honored, that is our great reward. And so we call out to him as his people come, Lord Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for you to come. And until that day, would you graciously enable us to walk faithfully to you, to be shaped by these urgencies. And I pray that for believers, and I pray it for the non-Christians who are here, that today would be the day in which they come and obey you as the Alpha and the Omega. And they obey your command to come and to take that water of life without cost on this very day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.